eSharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all the podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Jason Decon. Jason is the founder of European Affairs Recruitment Specialist. He's an executive search guy, a headhunter. Um, the first question I'd like to ask you, um, Jason, is to kind of maybe give some, maybe some free advice to people out there looking at the job market in Brussels in, in broad definition of public affairs. It seems to me that it's quite difficult to stand out from the crowd these days if you're a young professional arriving in Brussels. Everybody has you know, at least two degrees. They've lived and studied in many countries. Uh, they speak many languages. They present well. So how does a, a relatively young professional, professional in Brussels stand out from the, the competition? No, this is true. It's a very uh, observable trend in the, in the patterns in Brussels. The market is getting even more competitive at the, at the entry level. Right. And when you speak to a number of uh, hiring managers in Brussels, they seem to have already expectations that those people know other people, uh, although they have right. no experience. So the network, you mean? The network. So I think, obviously, there is a market that you can see and touch from your Brussels, LinkedIn, your active and the other job boards that are somehow touching this bubble. But in a way, already at the entrance level, you have to know other people that can recommend you either for direct highs at the organization, either because they can recommend you to other hiring managers. So young people coming in with zero network or with zero experience should not neglect the importance that the market seems to, to require of the network. And, and you know, being around, going to events, trying to leverage some network who might not be able to help you directly as an individual, but that could recommend you or put you in touch with other people. It seems to be lacking skills of those young entrants in the market, but it's still very important for us to manage to get the first job. Okay, and if we take the public affairs definition, which is where you specialize, and make it quite broad, uh, so it's not just public affairs consultancies, not just corporations or even trade associations, it's, it's bigger than that, it's NGOs, it's, uh, it's uh, all sorts of civil society organizations, uh, trade unions, etc., etc., etc. Is the, nonetheless, is the, the European public affairs market in that very much broader definition still quite a buoyant market or is it kind of reach saturation? It is, it is. Um, what you see, I think the trend that we can all see is that there are too many people for not enough jobs at the entry, entry level. Yeah, right. The more you go senior, the more there seems to be a bit of a gap into the market. And I think this gap starts at around five years of experience till 10 to 15. And then when you come into the more senior end, then there seems to be a more balanced level between the supply and the demand. So why would somebody come to you, give you a commission, a uh, commission to, to find somebody for them, as opposed to just putting out word of mouth, as opposed to putting stuff on LinkedIn, as opposed to putting adverts in a prestigious publication? Why would they, why would they even bother to hire Jason to come? Uh, outreach, I would say. Uh, when you post a job advert, when you use word of mouth, uh, this is basically our main competition in Brussels in terms of uh, recruitment uh, services. But in a way, you're only scratching the surface of the candidate marketplace. When we do approach individuals, we can basically tap into as many candidates as we as we want. And I think in a way, volume is the only guarantee of, of choice, basically. And that's what, what we are bringing to our clients, it's choice. How many times did I speak to uh, secretary generals or heads of offices uh, who, when they wanted to recruit a manager, a director, had only one person in mind. And if that person didn't come in, and there was no uh, plan B, no second option. 
we're we're trying to bring at least five options to our clients when we when we are appointed right. to recruit for them. But how do you how do you find your your candidates? It strikes me that well, little knowledge experience I have of headhunters is that they are obviously very keen that it's a business to run, that getting these getting the gigs, getting the the commissions, the the work from potential. Uh, recruiters, uh, but they slightly, that you can push back on this Jason, they slightly neglect the need maybe to also keep building up their pool of talent. So how do you guys uh, go around actually finding the, the candidates in the first place? Well, well, there are two ways of finding people or, or getting in touch with people. It's either reactive or specific job opportunity, either it's more spontaneous. People reaching out to you because they have heard about your name, the, you have reached out to them for, for a previous search and they were not interested, but right now it's a more appropriate moment. So we do have a, in, a, in our team somebody who's uh, in a way uh, dedicated to uh, uh, look after spontaneous candidates and she is having a first conversation with them. Those of those spontaneous candidates who have a profile that could be a fit for other uh, future assignments, we spend uh, an hour with them to try to understand what, what their needs are who they are, what they have done, what their expertise is, what their salary expectations are about. But of course the difficulty is that you cannot do so with everyone. There are so many candidates who contact us on a daily basis oh, really? to just uh, yeah, get to know us, also get known from us. And it's not possible to, uh, to invest an hour of our time with all these people. But those who do have an immediate possible fit with some of our future clients, we're happy to have a cup of coffee with them and see who they are. So these people who contact you spontaneously or even on a semi-regular basis, does that suggest they're actually not particularly happy with their current job position or they're just, they're just trying to keep their, their name and face from, from your point of view on, the, on your radar screen? It's a mix of both, uh, to be honest. There are people who at some point uh, decide, okay, now the, my search is on, I'm ready to uh, start looking for my next move, therefore I want yeah. to meet with you. Some people are, are here on a more passive kind of strategy and say, I want to, uh, every three to six months, uh, you know, keep uh, being present on the radar and have a, have a short chat. Well, it seems that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a truism, it's, it's, it's a well-established fact that gone are the days, long gone are the days when you'd, you'd enter a company, whatever, multinational, stay there for your, more or less your entire career. And now we know that the, the world has changed, the economy has, has, has moved on, and the you know, recruitment patterns have changed as a consequence. Uh, does that mean, therefore, that uh, people are trying to take more control, maybe, of their own career, that they... And they get as and a part of the manifestation of that taking control is that they're actually they get quite restless uh, in, a, in a way in a one or two years one position is is almost like enough for them before they want to go and find a new challenge should we say elsewhere is that a fair comment I think it's a generational thing right uh, in a way the uh, 25 to 35 years old are, are indeed on a very high turnover on a very high pace a very high frequency of changing jobs what you see, and which is a bit of a disappointing uh, trend, is that people stay in their jobs for a year and a half, two years. That's kind of a average for, for that kind of age. That's um, too short, you mean? It's a bit short indeed. Clients don't like that. Clients like stability. And the reason is that they would normally have to invest in, the, in those people when they hire them. Nobody really comes in with nothing to learn, otherwise it would be a win-lose situation for, for them when they come into the company. With the more senior people, then yeah, you have a bit of stability, but then sometimes you can have the opposite uh, trend, where people stay in the same job or in the same company for more than 10 years, and that's not good neither, because once those people want to get back on the market, everybody's a bit worried about their adaptation skills. <laughs> Will they be able to learn something else, to do things differently? 
to get into a new type of structure which they haven't experienced before. Well, this may be a maybe impossible question, but I'll ask anyway. Therefore, given your last answer, is there a kind of ideal uh, broad uh, length of time that somebody should stay in a particular position? Five years is always a kind of Five ideal. Years. Three to seven is very much acceptable, provided that in seven years you can still um, show some uh, development. If you mm. stay in the same kind of job or the same kind of responsibilities, you might show a bit of a lack of appetite, a lack of uh, ambition. Um, less than that, then you should have a good reason, and there are some people with mm. good reasons. I had two, uh, there was a new boss coming in and I, we didn't really click, that. there yeah. was nothing I yeah. could do about it. Um, yeah, different, different situations. Okay. It used to be until relatively recently a, a cast iron rule, in Brussels at least, that if you worked for the European institutions, especially the European Commission, and to a lesser extent the permanent representations and the embassies, that that was your career, that was your career for life. Now it seems to me there are more and more examples of people, not just at the end of their careers when they retire, but mid-career in the institutions and in the permanent representations, leave, leaving to join the, the private sector. Is that a growing trend or is that, uh, that something which should not be overstated? Yeah, I think it's slightly growing. It's not something which is sh shockingly growing, but right. you can see that, that trend indeed. Um, and I guess that the major reason why uh, employers are interested is because those people bring, bring network, they bring insight, mm. uh, views on how things are performed, how people work, and that's extremely valuable because you have people in the, in the lobbying, in the public affairs domain who have never been into uh, any of the institutions. So it brings a, a bit of a, of a different uh, view on how you perform the, the lobbying, the, the outreach strategy. Um, and some of those people um, do also provide those expertise on a kind of more senior advice basis, having mm. different employers. But that's kind of, um, in a way, part of any sector, which I think is, in a way, uh, bursting. You see many people creating their own jobs right. at some point of their career when they have made enough money um, they feel okay to provide a specific expertise to 10 different employers or different clients and and, and be a bit more flexible and therefore we see also then more and more retired people we talk a lot about the young professionals uh -huh. at market entrance until now let's talk about some of the oldies once they retire from these institutions uh, and they're still quite fit and active mm -hmm. uh, not, not exactly senile uh, they want to stay active uh, even though they may have a very maybe quite comfortable uh, European pension they want to stay active so uh, are these people employable or, or do they or do they have a, is there a danger that they may think their own self-value is not quite as high as what potential employers might think well, I think, I think they are employable but on a, on a part-time, very senior advisory basis. At least that's, that's what I can see. Unless they have a, a set of expertise which is very specific and, and they might be required on the market at that moment for that particular uh, expertise, normally that's what, you, that's what you see. Many advisory firms, many public affairs, law firms do employ those people. Uh, and sometimes it's not full-time and everybody's happy with that kind of uh, deal. I presume that, that you have uh, in your client base uh, in the private sector, maybe not so much on the NGO uh, side, civil society side, but on the, the private sector business side, clients who are obviously corporations and associations, but also consultancies. Do you, when people come to you asking for um, advice, do you have any sense, even though you're not, you're not a consultant yourself, I know that you're not a public affairs consultant, but obviously you know the world extremely well, do you have any views on or feeling why? a company or an association hires a consultant rather than just spend that money hiring somebody uh, internally? 
Well, you can spend that money internally if you have enough needs for, for recruitment services. Um, like you know yourself, any, any kind of function, if you internalize it, will probably cost less money. <laughs> the thing is that um, headhunting or, or recruitment is a very demanding function. The amount of time that we invest into the process is, is often um, I don't know, undervalued uh, by, by clients because they only see us reaching out to people, putting them in touch, but there is a whole methodology, a whole, a whole process in place so that we can land, we can, we can reach a, a decent shortlist of five candidates. We often reach out to probably 50 to 100 candidates per search. Wow. Uh, um, which obviously including a number of people that we know already, that we have assessed for previous clients. But every client is, is different. If not on the technical or on the years of experience side, it can be on the personality side. So every new search is basically a new assignment and you have to reassess the different options of different candidates for every client. That's what is really taking a lot of our, a lot of our time. And then we accompany clients and candidates across all the stages of the process. And it's not always in the search that you spend uh, most of your time sometimes into the overall negotiation phase, seduction phase, where people meet for the first time, the second time, the third time, then you prepare them, you, you debrief. And, and closing the deal is sometimes a process that can take more than a month right. uh, on the contract, on the salary, on yeah. the yeah. starting date, and then there is a whole counteroffer stage where people receive counteroffers from their employers, which is a good sign because it means <laughs> that they are valuable to their, to their employer where they are. And then the resignation, the notice period, the trial period. And the it's client. a long period. It's a long process. <laughs> okay, well, let's finish off this, this podcast with a couple of questions about the Brexit effect, the Brexit effect, effect on public affairs in Brussels. So first of all, are there any signs, rather than just the odd, you know, anecdotal stuff, that British nationals, in whatever capacity they're working in Brussels, uh, in, in broad public affairs uh, responsibilities, are seen as less useful, uh, less wanted because of the possibility, and I say possibility, that the, the UK might leave the European Union in 18 months' time? A couple of months ago, we, we published a newsletter that was saying no to your question. Right. Since then, there were a couple of developments where typically uh, London-based firms who want to beef up or create a presence from scratch in Brussels um, kind of want to invest in more European profiles. Right. And that's interesting um, because it gives a more fair chance to other people in, in Brussels, but also you wonder what, why is that situation uh, uh, a trend. So it's not yet a trend, it's only a couple of, um, a couple of discussions that uh, lead me to, to say that. But indeed, I think that the, um, the typical requirement that we used to have for you know, native English speakers in Brussels is getting down. Okay, well maybe one final question then and to develop that point because it's the other side of the coin maybe one hears again slightly anecdotally but you know com clear, clearly companies and associations from the UK in particular are preparing for this post-Brexit scenario if it were to take place. Therefore do you see and again any signs is my final question of British, British companies in particular uh, beefing up their presence in, in Brussels as a consequence of this possible Brexit? Well, not exactly. Uh, not yet. Some are, but some are also moving all the jobs back to London. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's a mixed, uh, mixed trend, mixed market right now for for people to either stay here or increase their presence or moving back to the UK. A number of companies that we were in touch with had a decent team of I don't know ten lobbyists in Brussels, and everything is now moved back to to London. 
So some are increasing, some are decreasing. There is no constant or no uh, single trend in this regard. Okay, we have to leave it there. Jason Descartes, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Paul.